It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. This episode is brought to you by Zencaster, the amazing platform I've been using to record the audio and video versions of this show since March 2020. It is the number one tool I recommend to podcasters. So if you're thinking of starting your own show or optimizing one you already have, visit Zencaster.com. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. It's free to try and you can enter the code WELLEVATOR to receive 30% off your first three months of the pro plan. WELLEVATOR is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. I feel like I have this smiling grin, smiling grin, a grin from ear to ear. (laughs) That's what I feel like I have right now. You know, when your cheeks kind of hurt because you've enjoyed somebody's company so much. That's how I feel with today's guest, Diana. I love that feeling. It's something that must feel kind of rare given that it's very poignant in this moment. And Diana, one thing that I didn't share with you before we started recording because I, I wanted to share now was that when I first saw your photo that you submitted for your bio uh, for the podcast, I felt this warm, fuzzy feeling from you. You have this energy that kind of emits from you, even in that one-dimensional photo experience of who you are. And that just made me so excited. That to me is very remarkable and rare for someone to have that impact. And I also felt that when we first started talking that you just put me at ease and you really embody so much of the work that you do. And it, it makes sense that you have a career based around empathy and inclusion and just making people feel that we're in this together and connected, I would say, as also part of your work. Your work is about diversity and equity. And I'm really thrilled to talk about that, especially in the context of team building and sports, which is your specialty. And it hits me on a, a number of levels. One is the curiosity I have from the sports side of things, because I've never been that into sports as a player or a viewer. <laughs> I'll watch the Super Bowl kind of like trying to figure out how football works. I still don't fully get it. Same thing. Basketball, I have a better idea. I would say baseball is the one sport that I like feel pretty confident about it makes more sense to me. Football is on the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm like, what is going on? (laughs) I don't know. Understandable. But, uh, you know, with the Olympics, I think they've already wrapped up by now, but I didn't even watch the Olympics, which made me a little sad. I usually enjoy watching the ice skating, but it just didn't draw me in. So I'm very curious to hear you speak about that. But before we get to it, I'm also very interested in what you do with team building. And one thing you had written on your website that hit me was this line that corporate team building is vital to the success of your company. When your employees feel comfortable, they're more likely to perform better. And 
that felt like such an important line or two lines technically, because when I used to work in corporate environments or even like less corporate, but more structured nine to five type work, it didn't feel like it was for me because I didn't always feel comfortable. I didn't always feel like it was about the team. There were so many environments where I felt like I was not being seen as a human being. I was seen as just the cog in the wheel, which I think is incredibly common, hopefully becoming less so. And perhaps this great resignation that we're going through and this shift that we've seen with the pandemic and people working from home, I think it's help people rethink it. And I guess that's a good place to start, which is, do you see a lot of shifts happening in the past two years with your work and how corporations and businesses in general are managing their teams? Do you feel like they finally recognize how important it is to value each individual, but also understand how they can work together as a team? Oh, Whitney, so much in just, first of all, after your, you know, like three minute intro of me, I wanted to be like, thanks folks. Thanks for coming to the podcast. I appreciate everything. I'm done. There's nothing else. I can only go downhill from here. Thank you so much for that. And for like capturing the way I I hope that I come across, but that also that I work really hard to make sure that I'm connecting with people in real authentic ways. I, you know, often feel sometimes that the energy that I have is too much and I'm like, oh, I got to, and I've, you know, I'm almost 50 and I've gotten to a place where I'm, I embrace that, like, this is who I am. And, you know, if people accept that and I can bring something that's wonderful, but I'm also not going to shy away from who I am and what I'm about. So I really appreciate that. And I appreciate the recognition of it. I'm glad that it's positive for you for sure. I feel the same way just in this fence of the, you know, the few minutes that we got to connect. I really feel the the same energy. I feel like I've talked to you before in some other capacity, in some other life at some other time. So I appreciate that so much. You know, when you read that quote from my website, you know, I am, like I said, I'm almost 50 and that shouldn't be an excuse for not understanding technology because I don't know what happened, but I was really good at technology. Like when America Online came out, you know, 35 years ago, like I was the first one with one of those little discs. Like I had a screen name. I was a little chat moderator. Like I knew all the things. Somehow, I don't know what it was, but about a year into the pandemic, I woke up one morning and I was literally like, took my mouth. I was like, hello, is this thing on? Like, I just can't figure out how to use technology at all. So needless to say, haven't really done much with my website. And when you read that, I thought the first thing that came to my mind is, gosh, I should change that because feeling comfortable, right, is something that I think is really important. But I also think that feeling uncomfortable is something that's really important. And so much of the work that we do is getting people to a place of discomfort And I don't mean that in the sense, like, I don't want anyone to walk into work every day, wherever they are and feel uncomfortable every day. Like that is not a space where you need to be. But there are times when we are growing, when we're learning, when we're developing, when we are repairing harm, that feels uncomfortable. And to be in those spaces, I think is valuable just to connect as human beings. Like, you know, we learn when we're in those spaces. 
I do want folks to feel like they belong and that that space was there for them. You know, you started this kind of saying like, I don't, I don't really know sport. I don't sport. I haven't done the sports thing, you know, all of those things. And, you know, when I hear folks say that, I often think that it is because in our society, we've created a very narrow lens of who gets to sport, as I like to say. And that very narrow lens of who gets to sport doesn't just exclude people, right, from participation, but it excludes them from ever making sport or movement or activity part of their identity. And that makes me sad because I think there are so many wonderful, valuable things about sport, about movement, about activity. But, and when we deny someone that ability to do that, then that's something that stays with them the rest of their lives. There was a statistic many years ago, I believe that it's probably still the same, that said that, you know, if girls in particular don't participate in physical activity and sport in a meaningful and safe way by the time they're 10 years old, they only have a 10% chance of that ever becoming part of their identity and for them to engage in it as they become adults. Well, our bodies matter. And one of the things that we think about in the pandemic, right? What did everybody do in the pandemic? They started to, you know, buy their weight equipment, buy a, you know, create their home gyms if they had the privilege to have that space to do, you know, walking groups or socially distance. All of a sudden, when we stopped being able to connect and we were forced at home, we focused on our bodies and what we can do and how we take care of our bodies. And that's a lot why I do the work. I haven't answered your question yet <laughs> around team building. I apologize. But, you know, I think a lot of businesses have to understand we are a very individualistic society. We're very outcome focused as well. So when we focus on the outcome, we often forget the people in that process. And whether it's coaching or you're building a product or you're giving a service, whatever it might be, your outcome will be better if you focus on the people and the process that produce it. And how do we create an opportunity to do that? Wow. I love that. I was writing it down in, in the background and now I'm kind of trying to take it in because you're absolutely right. And that's something I felt more and more sensitive to. And I've noticed this actually just in the past few weeks for some reason, like that I'm very sensitive to feeling overlooked, not taken seriously, not respected, not feeling like I belong, discarded. And I'm extremely sensitive. The more that I understand myself, the more I want to be understood by others. And I've recently been examining neurodivergence. And when I learned about where I fall on the spectrum, things like autism and ADHD, which had never even occurred to me, but I have a lot of the symptoms or traits, I should say is a better word. And I didn't know that. But once I had that understanding and awareness, I almost felt this sadness of all the times that I didn't feel like I belonged, 
that I didn't feel understood, that I felt looked over. And also people that didn't respect the fact that my brain worked differently, I suppose. And I didn't even have the awareness to speak up for myself. So I found myself in a lot of work environments and team environments to this day where it was like this energy of, come on, Whitney, just do it like the rest of us. Come on, Whitney, like everybody else is doing it this way. Why can't you do it too? Like that's a huge story of my life. It brings me pain even and to share that. And I imagine so many people have experienced that in their own ways, whether it's a gender issue or a sexuality or race or, you know, whatever things that they feel makes them different or people perceive them as different. And so they want them to just become more like, quote, everybody else. And then the more that I study these things, the more I recognize that that everybody else mindset seems to be dominated by a patriarchal viewpoint, right? It's like, is this this masculine white energy? Like you have to make your brain work the way that men's brains work, for example, or you have to operate in this kind of straight edge, you know, linear way. And like, if you fall anywhere outside of that box, if you, you're seen as coloring outside the lines, basically, and then you're shamed for that. And that's heartbreaking. And I imagine you see that all the time. And I think about in the context of your work, Diana, like, first of all, you've got me thinking about why sports haven't felt that appealing to me. And I'm like going back to high school. I remember being forced into playing football. And I'm like, (laughs) I really didn't like football. And I'm like, did I develop this like I don't like football, so I'm not going to understand. Is that why I don't understand what's going on in the Super Bowl? <laughs> like because of that childhood trauma being forced Very to do something well, I didn't want to do. <laughs> but I also remember like knowing more about my brain. I didn't like a lot of sports because as much as I enjoy teamwork, I didn't like, I don't even know how to describe it. It's really interesting. I mean, you really got my wheels turning here, but I just have this like memory of soccer being something I simultaneously liked but didn't like because of the way that it was being coached or something. You know, we often with young people ask them, we talk about this idea of team over self, right? So you have to give up yourself to be part of a team. And I think that's erroneous. I think that's traumatic and I think it's detrimental. You know, put team above self. I don't think we have to do that. I don't think we should do that. I don't think we have to deny who we are. And oftentimes we do that to assimilate, to feel like we belong, to be one of the, you know, the team. And in doing that, we harm ourselves, but we also like create an environment where we just, we can't be our best selves. We can't show up in the ways that we need to. You know, when you tell me that story about it, Number one, even in your words today, and obviously you may be many years away from that experience, I still feel that pain for you. It's palpable. And when we think about those injuries that we experience from society, from individuals, from a coach, from a teacher, from whomever it may be that did that, we have to recognize and understand that we carry that. And then we bring that to our work environment. We bring that to our relationships, those simple things of, all the culminating places we didn't feel like we belonged. And 
if we think about corporate America, if we think about sport now, you know, they were designed by men for men and mostly by white men, cisgender white men for cisgender white men, right? So we've done a lot. Title IX is coming up on their 50-year anniversary, right? We have a law that dictates equal opportunities within sport and other educational programs. And yes, we have access, but do we still, you know, have we achieved a place where we belong yet? And I think we struggle. We're still struggling in that area because we've talked about inclusion, right? And I have a love-hate with the word inclusion. And here's why. I think inclusion means I didn't design this for you. I never thought you'd be part of it. But you know what? I'll make a little space for you and you can come in. But there's still some things you're going to have to assimilate to because we're not going to change everything, right? We won't change the equipment. We won't change the language. We won't change the schedule. We won't, because there are some things that we codify and institutionalize the discrimination and oppression, especially in sport, by calling it pure. We don't want to ruin the purity of the sport. So if we're going to stay true to the sport, then there are things we cannot change. And I've been, you know, shouting from the rooftops for a long time. No, let's change things. Let's actually bring in all those that have been marginalized, oppressed, excluded, and have them redesign the space so that the space is truly theirs. It's not like I should walk in and be grateful for an opportunity because you've decided now that you've included me. Because the very nature of that says, I have no power. And I think we have to create different ways in order to do that. I think folks within business now and corporations are kind of saying the same thing. Like, I don't want to just come to this space and try to assimilate into the environment and feel grateful for being here. I actually want to feel like I belong. I'll give you an example that my wife actually uses a lot. She's smarter than me. It's really the only way to describe it. She's just smarter than me. And if we looked at back in my day, so like I said, I'm about a year away from 50. I don't know why that sounds cooler than saying I'm 49. I could just say I'm 49, right? But instead it's like a year away from fit. Like somehow that makes it total sidebar. So anyway, back in my day, we had desks that were right-handed or left-handed. For those of you that that sounds weird and you're like, what are you talking about? Google it, right-handed, left-handed desks. And if most of the desks that were in our you know, very industrial era rows were right-handed, because the assumption was that the norm is right-handed. Now, if a, someone who was left-handed walked into the room, even the nuns at my school would come in very well and be like, oh my gosh, you're left-handed. We'll go get you a left-handed desk. But then that left-handed desk has to be in a certain space in the room. You can't pick anywhere that you can sit. We have to put it in certain place because your elbow is going to be out in the row or something along those lines. So we included you. We definitely didn't make you feel like we were waiting for you. And one of the things that I think businesses need to really think about is how are we creating space where people feel like we were waiting for them, that we knew they were coming? And that to me is what belonging is, that you knew I was coming. 
and that you've set up an environment. Now that could be, you knew I was coming. So you spent the time to address your bias. You knew I was coming. So you spent the time to make sure that, you know, there was a space for me. You knew I was coming. So you set the schedule that also includes my cultural or religious beliefs, like all of the different ways. That's how people feel like they belong. Wow. I absolutely love the way that you phrased it. And, you know, it's the natural tendency of trying to think of these moments in life where you can relate. And it it reminds me a bit of how I felt as a vegan. And since a lot of my listeners are vegan, this is a a simple way to reflect as well. Uh, Or dietary preferences are a great thing. You know, I'm not only vegan, but I'm gluten-free. I have all these food sensitivities. Anytime I go out to eat, I have to think about what's the menu going to be? What's being served? If I'm going to someone's party, do I eat ahead of time? Do I eat after? I mean, like so much of my life is dictated by food and I'm used to it. So it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But to your point, Diana, there's a big difference in when I go somewhere. And first of all, they ask me ahead of time what my dietary preferences are. That's like, oh, I belong there. When I get there, they do it in a way that I don't want it to be a spotlight. I don't want it to be like the separate section, the plate where it's just, you know, every vegan's been to a wedding and the best option they have is plain pasta. But it's like, if you're gluten-free too, then you're completely left out. That's a huge issue if you're stacked. But then like the people that, you know, give you a plate of boring vegetables and they're like here. And then even worse, they laugh at you. They point it out. They say, oh, you're the vegan. And you kind of have like, oh, yeah, you want to laugh at yourself to make light of it. But like deep down, you don't feel that inclusion versus I've been to places where they go above and beyond. They ask me questions. They know all my dietary restrictions. They not only provide for me, but they do it in a way where I feel included and my food is just as good as everybody else's. And I've never thought about it in that context of belonging like you just stated, Diana. So thank you so much for phrasing it that way. You know, it's last year, my wife for her birthday wanted to do this prefix menu at this place on the Oregon coast that we wanted to go to, you know, once in a lifetime, we, we go and you set up the, the reservation and you let them know. And I too have to be gluten-free as well, which for an Italian we'll talk about later has some trauma to it as well. But I, you know, we walked in and they were bringing around bread and there was only 15 tables. So, you know, you had tons of service and they bringing around bread. And I turned to the woman and I said, oh, no, no, I'm sorry, I'm gluten-free. And she said, oh, this is gluten-free bread. We knew you were gluten-free. And it was, I don't know why, but that moment stuck with me for the rest of the meal. Everything they did, now I felt like, like we're family, like, you know, me and we're here. And, you know, I grew up in, in a very Italian family. So food is, you know, when I come home, my mother would first be like, are you hungry? Do you want an olive? And you'd be like, no, oh, do you want some cheese? Nope. Don't want cheese. Do you want a piece of bread? No, I'm good. I can make you a meatball. Do you want me to heat you up some meatballs? No, I think I'm all right. What about I'll make you lasagna? You like, it's just this ever growing, like you want something, you're going to eat something. What is it? So I'll give you all the options so that you feel like you have them. And like, 
food is really important to us. So even that idea, when you go into a business and they have a cafeteria and like, how are you? Is it like the ancillary thought over here? Or is it actually something that you feel like we put the same effort into your food. We put the same effort into your experience than we put into everybody else's, even though it's different, it's, you know, but you're going to feel you're going to get the same exact treatment that everybody else gets. And that's a big effing deal. That matters. That makes me feel important. Yes. Wow. I mean, it's, (laughs) it's bringing up a lot. Before March 2020, every guest on this show recorded with me in person because I wanted to ensure the highest quality sound possible. But this took extra time and effort to produce, plus it limited me to people who were visiting or living in Los Angeles. When I switched to Zencaster, I realized how much easier remote recording was for me and my guests. Now everyone can easily record studio quality sound from the comfort of their own homes. If you want to try it out, visit Zencaster.com and enter the code WELLEVATOR to receive 30% off your first three months of the pro plan, which is what I use. I can't wait to hear your show, so send it over to me as soon as it's live. I guess I maybe this ties into the conversation too, where if you do something that's culturally outside of the box or out of the norms as a coping mechanism, you start to expect that you're not going to be treated equally. You start to expect that you don't belong. Like when I go into a cafe, I expect they're not going to have the milk that I need for my dietary choices or preferences. I expect that they might make a face. I actually went to an Italian restaurant a few nights ago, and I did not mention that I was vegan or gluten-free. Instead, before I went there, I looked up the menu I called ahead, I asked a few questions, and I went and prepared. I ordered my food, I ate it, I enjoyed it. It wasn't the greatest thing because I was picking off of like the sides menu. And at the end of the meal, the waitress said, was talking about dessert, and I said, you know, are any of the desserts vegan? And she said, yeah, actually, let me, and then she paused and said, wait a second, did you order that food earlier because you're vegan? And I said, yeah, and she said, oh, we actually had a lot more of other items on the menu I could have told you about. They, they just aren't well-marked. And I was like, I realized that I was trying to minimize my needs. I didn't want to speak up for myself. I have before, right? But in that moment, I was like, it's not worth it. I'm not going to ask. If I had asked, if I had said at the beginning, hey, I'm vegan and gluten-free, do you have some options for me? she would have said yes. And it turned out they had gluten-free pasta and they had vegan options. But I assumed that they didn't because it wasn't on the menu. Right. So there's like that two levels of like, if you don't mark things on there, you actually, some people just might not state their preferences because they're assuming if it's not on the menu that that they don't have it. And you don't want to be that burden sometimes of asking. And that's the other level is like, why do I feel like a burden for asking for what I need at a restaurant where I'm paying? Right. And it's also the idea, right, that when I have to diminish a part of myself that matters to me and is important to me, I never get the full experience of where I'm at. So when people have to show up and diminish parts of themselves because people, whether they have to change their hairstyle, change the way they talk, change the way they dress, 
right? Because they have to fit in and they diminish and make themselves small or hide a part of themselves. They're not showing up completely and they will never be fully immersed in the experience. And then we're like, you know, I don't understand why Whitney's not, you know, she doesn't really fully engage. Well, Whitney's only able to bring 75% of herself. So of course she's only, you're only going to get 75% of that. Now, how do we create a space where we allow people to be who they are? And if that makes us uncomfortable, if we feel like that goes against norms, that's not your issue. That's my issue. That's me to fix, right? I have to come up. I have to figure out why I feel that way. I don't have to make somebody else change or be different in that. And I think that's the thing that folks are really, you know, struggling with. What's interesting is that I find that in corporate America and even nonprofit space, that's an easier conversation to have than it is in sport. And in sport, it is this, you know, this protection that everybody is, doesn't want you to change sport because somehow if we change sport, we change America, you know, somehow we change the whole institution. You know, there was a, a, a study that came out several years ago and it said, you know, I think it was 80%, but 75% of statistics are made up on the spot. So I think it was like 80% of women who were in positions of power in fortune 500 companies identified as being an athlete when they were younger. And everyone was like, see, see how important being an athlete is. And I thought, no, no, no. See how much sport trains us for the patriarchy and how much, so how easy it is for us to assimilate into the patriarchy because we are learning it through sport. So how would we ever change the systems, right? Our whole economic systems and the way that we operate within our corporate structures, our nonprofit structures, if we are training, right? Even those that are disruptors in that, or could be disruptors in that space, to assimilate without really even knowing it, like without any consciousness, you know, and I'm party to that as well. I find myself in the same ideas and that same kind of like, you know, mindset at times. And again, it is way too easy to take it and say, throw it all away. Because what we do is that we forget and we, all the tiny little changes of things that people brought to sport or other systems that are good. And how do we take from those systems the good and reuse those to potentially rebuild in a space that looks different? You know, on the the college or pro level within sport, I'm not going to get colleges to decide like, we're doing this different. We're going to completely, you know, and even on the pro level, it's more challenging. Although, you know, we see a team like Angel City, you know, a women's professional soccer team now that is owned by women, women and female investors or women investors. You have women who are running the operations. They're in the the C-suites and you have women that are designing and being consultants and women who are playing. And when you see that, you will see things are different, but that's an exception right now to the rule. And I hope it becomes more of the rule where we can make the changes are on the youth level. And we're so unwilling to do that. You know, we don't want to change the game. We don't want to do things differently in any way because somehow that then disrupts an entire system. 
And you're like, yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. We're disrupting an entire system. Yes, I'm in. I want to do it. Sign me up for that. Because I want baby Whitney, little elementary school Whitney, to be like, sport? Yes. That's a space where I get to bring my unique self and I get to do that. And as a coach, I am my responsibility is not just to win games. Actually, my responsibility isn't to win games at all. My responsibility is to make sure that you have a really positive, safe experience and that you learn and develop and grow and all of these things. And that's what matters to me. And if we can change that system, then I feel like I've been a success in some ways. I have four siblings and I am the kind of middle of the four in the And I have taken on every characteristic of a middle child that you possibly can. In fact, my sister always says that I should have named my consulting company Middle Child Consulting because that is the idea of how do we create spaces where people feel safe? How do we create spaces where people feel like they belong? And in the process, can I make you laugh? It's really all it is. I'm very grateful for that because... I'm not a middle child. I'm the eldest. I have a younger sister. It's just the two of us. And I can't relate from a middle child standpoint, but I can absolutely relate to that deep desire to feel like I belong. And as I mentioned lately, I've recognized the places where I didn't feel like I belonged. And I, it's interesting to go back to that little Whitney in, in middle school and think, or in elementary school and think about like how to your point, much we are shaped back then on levels that we may never even realize unless we are doing that deep inquiry. And for me to look back on like the gym, I think I remember my elementary gym teacher and have like these mixed feelings about her, but I do have this vague memory of her always being annoyed with me. And like, I don't know if I was acting up or if I just felt like she didn't understand me. That's what I think it was. Like she wanted me to quote, be in line. I can see it from like, and this is, comes into a question for you, Diana, is how do you lead a team as a coach, as a manager, as a boss, simultaneously create order so that things don't get out of hand, but also recognize how each person is different Instead of the traditional way of doing things in sports and school and work environments of like, in order to create order, everybody has to do things the same way. We can't make exceptions. Also going back to your point about like, maybe we'll make an exception if you're left-handed, like we'll do that for you, but you're going to feel like lucky that we're doing it for you. Like we're going to make you feel like you are so fortunate that we did you a big favor for your way of to accommodate you, right? Where it's like that, it creates that guilt. And I know you do a lot of work around shame and that lasting feeling of, I don't want to speak up for my differences because I don't want to feel guilty for making someone accommodate me. I don't want to feel shamed for pointing out my differences. Maybe I should just pretend like I'm the same as everybody else because I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to feel those negative emotions. So I'm going to quiet down. And I'm curious, how does a leader of any type 
balance that in terms of like making things work, you know, getting the job done, making it through the game, finishing the school day, all these different environments, but also acknowledging that each person in that environment is going to be different and have different needs. Oh, that's such a wonderful question. So a couple of different angles to this, the first of which is that most people actually do, we're social animals, right? And we are, our humanity is contagious. So what I mean by that is most people actually want to kind of like fit in and do things together. And I would say that generally, especially with young people, when they are stepping outside of the norm or their it's because there's a need that's not being met. They're, they're challenged in some way. They're, they're struggling. And that most of the time, children really do want to comply or, you know, that's a terrible word, but they want to kind of be in the group in some way. And oftentimes they can. I think as leaders, as educators, as coaches, as teachers, you know, we have to recognize and understand there are rules for power and there are rules for safety. And there are some times when we have to say, these are the rules, right? And you might be struggling with them, but these are the rules. You know, there's, if you think about this kind of grid of accountability and support, right? Oftentimes, like we want to still have high accountability in some ways, but you cannot have high accountability and low support, right? You have to have high accountability and high support. So I see you're struggling with this. Talk to me about the ways in which we can support you in that. So oftentimes what I find is that leaders believe that 100% compliance is what they are responsible for. You must do it and you must do it this way. As opposed to thinking like, hmm, what are we trying to achieve here? And what are the ways in which we can still achieve that where you don't necessarily have to do it this one very specific way? And how do we think outside the box and create spaces for, you know, us to do that? When we think about it in the context of right and left-handed desks, how did we solve that problem? Well, we solved it by universal design, right? Now we sit at tables. Now we're, so if we design again with the folks, all the folks who could be at the party, then it is a much different conversation that we're having. I think the other thing to recognize and understand as far as leaders is we think about leaders, again, through this very paternalistic, patriarchal, like, I am ahead of you and you are following me. I have the knowledge, I have the power, and you must follow me and comply. And that is not leadership in my eyes at all. Leadership really is about, I see you, I get to know you, I understand you, and I support you. I am the facilitator. I am the, your greatest champion. I am the person who will coach you. I'm the person who will correct when needed, right? And show and provide feedback in those ways. But that relationship is my responsibility as a leader is to make sure that you are successful. And if you are struggling with that, it is not mine to just come in with that, you know, wagging finger and be like, hey, get it together. But it's like, hey, what's happening? What's going on? What's going on in the environment? What's going on in your life? What are the ways in which I can support you to do that? Now, most of the time, when you do that, folks do find ways to work together without diminishing who they are, but also finding a commonality that then draws them all together. Is it easy? No, not at all. It's like when we tell coaches, when we talk about motivation with coaches and we say, you know, 
you can motivate by making kids run, right? If you don't do this, you're going to do sprints and you'll get compliance. Absolutely. But what you will never get is a internalization of confidence. What you will never get is getting them to recognize and understand the potential. If I say to you, run to this line right here, and if you don't get here, you're going to run. I'll punish you. You'll get to the line. But if I inspire you and facilitate and support you, you may run way past the line. And I've now prevented you to do that. So the more you put your finger on someone, the more you force them into one way of looking at things and doing things, the more you limit their potential and thus you limit the potential of your entire team. And that is not something that I would ever want any team to engage in at all. It reminds me when you're talking about running, I thought of something we had to do in school called the mile run. Did you have that too? It was like the government. I don't know if yeah. they still do that Presid- at Presidential fitness. <laughs> Most don't use the presidential fitness. <laughs> yeah. Which was really started, I believe, nobody quote me, don't, don't at me on this, but I believe was started by Kennedy in response to the fact that we did not have enough people in shape for the draft. Oh, wow. So it was a way of kind of measuring and making sure that we were keeping, you know, folks. Wow. There's some truth to what I just said in some context. Maybe I may have the, the wrong president. Wow. Yeah. I vaguely remember something like that. And I brought that up because, you know, there's that cliche of the mile run that I not only saw in my school, but I've seen other people and even like television shows showing this of like, there's the people that run really fast because maybe they really like running. Maybe they run outside of school. Maybe it comes naturally to them. And then there's the rest of the students who are just doing it to be in compliance because you had to do it. And there would always be somebody who would walk the entire way and just take their time, almost like a rebellious act of like, nah, I'm not going to run, but I will do the mile because I'm being forced to. And there is that like dread I would feel because it was being forced upon me, you know, like this, like, ugh, you know, and, and that's like also ties back into this question of like leadership, whereas there's going to be things that we dread, but that may feel really important or good for us. And then there are things that we dread because we're just not in alignment with them. And one thing that I recognized about myself a few years ago was how I need to know the why behind something in order for me to do it. And the element of compliance that probably bothers me the most is when someone says, don't ask, just do like it's that, what's that phrase about jumping, you know, how high? It's like, <laughs> I'm completely like, it. it's like, don't, don't ask how high, but like just whatever it is. It's like, you know, don't ask any questions, just do it. And I think about like, you know, military and the strictness of that. And like that, a lot of, I think our leadership feels like it's based around the military, which kind of comes back around to this presidential thing. It's like how much of the way that we've been conditioned is designed to mimic that military-like way of acting where, you don't ask the sergeant or whoever questions, you just do what the sergeant says. And even if you're in a ton of pain, you have to grin and bear it. You know, you have to like force yourself to do these things and you have to condition your brain to act without thinking. And that just goes completely against 
who I am at the core, where I love questions. <laughs> I want to question everything. I want to understand it. I want to observe it. I don't like to do any action until I feel like I've examined it first, which may not always serve me, but for the majority of cases, it serves me greatly because then I can choose the path that is best for my skill set. That's to your point too. Like I can run farther if I can do it on my own terms. I can run farther if I don't feel forced to do it. I can enjoy it and thus push myself in a greater way than if I had someone shouting in my ear the whole time. Right. You feel like it's your accomplishment. You know, I was doing an observation at a PE class and the teacher was going over throwing and it was a fifth grade class and there was a young girl that was kind of off to the side and she just kind of took herself out of the activity. And she said, I said, you know, what's going on? Are you okay? And she said, I don't know why we're doing this. And I was like, I don't know either. I was like, why would you want to do it? And she said, because it's fun. And I was like, oh, well then just do it because it's fun right? Like find your own why as to why you show up. You know, I work with with a big corporation I and mean, it was a, a tech firm and they was asking the the folks in the firm and they had some pretty like critical work that they were doing that was pretty high pressure. And I said to one gentleman, I said, why do you come to work every day? Do you have like a passion for this? Like, what are you doing? And he's like, no, I really don't like this work at all. He's like, the work I don't love. He's like, but I love the people I work with. I love figuring out problems with this team. This is a fun team. And that's what I love doing, right? And some might say, well, you shouldn't do a work that you don't, shouldn't do work you don't love. Well, for him, what he loved, right? The why was, I like these people and I want to be here with these people. And I get to spend days, you know, my days with people I actually enjoy. And that's what matters to me. And that's their why and let them have their why. You know, I want to go back to something that's really important to me because it's actually the title of my company, which I am way on brand today, multiple ways. When we think about sport, we've tied sport very much into the military in a variety of different ways. And I won't take up too much time kind of talking about that today. But, you know, I, the name of my company is called Coaching Peace. And it originally started because I was writing my master's thesis. It was like 20 years ago. And we had just invaded Afghanistan. And it was, we were a nation at war. And I remember that not being lost on me by any means. And it was something I woke up with kind of every day thinking about that experience. And I was in a gym and there was a fifth grade girls basketball game going on. And one team was up significantly. You know, they had far more points than the other team. And the other team who was down was trying to get the ball over half court and they couldn't. And the defense was, and I was watching this and I was started to like really listen to the coaches. And I started to hear words like defeat and attack and opponent. And all of a sudden sport became war for me in my mind and all the language that we use, all the ways we're in enemy territory you know, we're in the opponent's 10-yard line. We are attacking. We have to go on offense. We have to go defense, all of this. And I thought, this is by design. This is not by accident. It's not by accident we constructed sport and use this language like that. No, it was by design. And why, for whatever reasons, right? And we could probably do an entire dissertation on that. And I thought, 
we're a nation at war and we're somewhat desensitized to it. We've been at war in the United States more than we haven't in our short history. And I was like, of course we haven't because we're coaching war. Every day we're coaching that. We're coaching the violence, right? We're coaching all of those things. Now, I'm not making a statement on you know, military is good, bad, things like that, you know, by any means. But what I do believe is that if our ultimate goal is peace, if our ultimate goal is to create spaces where people feel safe, where people feel like they belong, well, then let's start coaching that. So let's start thinking about the process. Let's start thinking about the language that we use. You know, one of the things that we always say is, Peace is not the absence of conflict. The absence of conflict is, you know, I can't imagine what that would be. Conflict is necessary and important in every, you know, aspect. And it will happen. What it is, is the absence of violence, where that violence is direct, cultural, systemic, what, you know, structural, whatever it is, that is how do we remove that violence? So when I think about, you know, homophobia, racism, sexism, that's violence, that's cultural violence. The ways in which we create peace are eradicating those, right? Those are the things that matter. How do we coach peace every day? How do we do that with our young kids? How do we do that with our employees in our relationships one-on-one? What are the ways in which we do that? And that means that we recognize even in conflict, we do harm. How do we repair those harm? How do we repair that harm? How do we take ownership for the harm that we do and acknowledge that? And oftentimes we think about leadership is, you know, you don't admit when you're wrong. And I say like, we don't invite critique and we don't invite feedback. And I'm like, we have to change that. You know, what if I've said this a lot of times, it's my most favorite example. And, you know, as you get older, you have very few examples that you just keep a good repertoire, you know, as a coach, I remember, and I was, I started coaching very young. So I remember walking into the locker room and if we had a good game, I'd be like, great job, everybody did a great job. And if we, you know, had a terrible game or whatever, I'd be like, you all didn't show up today. And I thought like, what an awful way to like, think about that as a coach, I have no responsibility. So, and you have no ability to critique me. So I thought, what if you walk into a locker room and you said, hey, we struggled today. What are the ways in which I could have supported you better? Do you think we prepared? Could I have called a timeout a different place? Where are the ways that I could have supported you? And then listen to that feedback, as hard as that might be. Well, what if you went into your annual review with your boss and you were like, you know, and your boss says to you, hey, before I talk about some of the things I'd love to see you improve, I'd really love to know what are the ways in which I supported you or could have done a better job supporting you? And then actually made changes based on that feedback. Not just like, thanks for sharing. Oh, also you did X, Y, and Z. But I actually was like, oh, you needed better communication from me. Let's talk about that. So I'm going to set a meeting with you next week. We're going to really challenge. I'm going to think about it and I'm going to come with some ideas. What if I did some work in that process? So for us, that's too what, when we talk about repairing harm, we talk about creating those spaces that, you know, reciprocity becomes really important. This generation does not want to be told what to do, right? They want to be inspired to do something. And that is our response. The great resignation is about the lack of inspiration. 
I don't know why I'm doing this anymore. Inspire me to be here. Make me feel like I matter. Make me feel like I'm important in this space and not gratuitously, right? Not just like in this way that you're going to get a really good 360 evaluation, but because I matter. Even if I frustrate the living bejesus out of you, like still find the way because this is your role. You're a leader, you're a coach, you're an educator, whatever it might be. And I'm not saying that's easy, but that's why there's us, my consulting company, so we can help you. (laughs) I have to ask you what you think about the show Ted Lasso, because it feels like a lot of what you're sharing embodies that. And it's... (laughs) I I have so much about Ted Lasso. (laughs) So we got to spend some time on that because, I mean, it is such a fascinating show to examine from so many levels. And one of which is how many people, including someone like me, who's not really into sports, watches that show because of that coach and because of how he does things differently. But sometimes I look at him and think the fact that that is so different is a little sad because why does his behavior as a coach stand out so much? Why is that seen as unique? Shouldn't that be the norm based on everything that you're sharing? So you've hit my hot button. Somebody said to me the other day, which I take as a compliment for sure, but also it kind of like someone said, you're the female Ted Lasso. And I said, there are a lot of females that have been Ted Lassoing for way longer than Ted Lasso. And that if we are now using that, you know, as the, we should have paid it. And there are a lot of, you know, other folks, right? Not just females, but we are using every, you know, I see folks post on their LinkedIn. They'll, they'll do a quote, a Ted Lasso quote. And I'll think you love something that you would never allow to exist in our society. And that to me is the self-reflection that I think people need to have. If you love Ted Lasso, then I want you to really think about whether or not you'd allow Ted Lasso to coach your kids, or you'd allow Ted Lasso to coach your favorite professional team, right? And if you say, well, no, yeah, or sure, yeah, I guess, right? Or no, but that's different, then I want you to think about why. Because we have a system now that Ted Lasso wouldn't exist. Like it's impossible for that to happen. Do I love the fact that we have made an entire show? highlighting a coach who does things so differently, so much through a human lens. Absolutely. And I am all for that show, uh, you know, but what frustrates me is the amount of people that will quote Ted Lasso who won't necessarily embody that. You want to learn how to embody Ted Lasso, we can teach you. The ways in which you take that character, right? And infuse that into your everyday life and the work that you do is, would be pretty interesting for people to really think about, because I would love an entire pro league. I would love every youth league to have those Ted Lassos. That's what we want. We want coaches that do that. The little head games and manipulation we don't want necessarily, but you know, it's a great space for sure. 
Yeah, it's I, I love what you're saying there because just unpacking. I feel like maybe you, if you haven't yet, you could teach a whole class around that, like exactly what you're sharing. I would be so fascinated to hear more about that. Maybe that's your podcast, your future podcast. Maybe that's my podcast. <laughs> I did write on an airplane ride back from Boston after that. Somebody, I heard somebody behind me on the plane talking about Ted Lasso and I got all fired up and I wrote an entire article about it. It's still sitting in my iPad. I've done nothing with it. And I was like, the 10 reasons why Ted Lasso could never exist in our sports culture and the 10 things that we should do. It was like my own BuzzFeed list. I really hope you post that. If you don't send it to me, I'll put it in the show notes for this episode. We might do that. Exactly. <laughs> we'll make, we'll you, turn there might be some editing video. and spell check. <laughs> well, you're in luck because that's what I love to do. I am very grateful to have Zencaster as a sponsor. They have been so supportive of the show through social media and newsletter shout outs. Plus, they have truly incredible customer service. Their all-in-one podcast production platform keeps getting better and better because they take user feedback seriously. I'm especially grateful for the HD video recording features, which makes it easy to put this show on YouTube and social media. If you want to try it out, visit Zencaster.com. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. It's free to try, and you can enter the code WELLEVATOR to receive 30% off your first three months of their pro plan, which, as I mentioned, is what I use for this show. If you have any questions about podcasting, send me a message, and I'd be happy to share more tips and tricks. Well, there's one final thing I wanted to make sure we touch upon, and I'm sure that we could talk about this so much at length, but it does kind of tie into this whole idea of Ted Lasso in a way where you're saying how we're not set up to actually accept that type of coach. And one thing that I really would love to know more about, and I'm trying to educate myself on, is non-binary language. And you had written how, I think it was in the podcast pitch, which was how to coach using non-binary language and being inclusive. And I lit up when I read that because I feel pretty ignorant around it. And I want to see that happen more in sports and leadership roles because it feels like we're in this time of fogginess, right? Like I think about the use of pronouns, for example, which I'm getting better and better at navigating, but There are times where I'm not sure, is it always appropriate to write she, her as my pronouns? Like I've been very intentional about placing that, you know, I'll even do it on my Zoom meetings. Like I'll change my name. So it says Whitney Lawrence and she, her, but I'm usually the only one. And then I think like, is this necessary? Or is the fact that I'm the only one really saying something about society right now? And it just feels very confusing So I'm curious about this in terms of how I can be a better ally, but also I want to know where things are at and where you would like things to be for coaches, leaders, teachers, et cetera, in terms of embracing non-binary language and acceptance within the teams. Yeah, I think a couple of things, you know, I too am always learning and always listening to determine, you know, what are the best ways to really ensure that everybody feels like this space is for them. We 
about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, actually now, we used to talk to coaches about simply saying to stop saying, hey guys, you know, we're going to do X, Y, and Z today. And I remember back then getting a lot of pushback from coaches and saying, isn't that like, come on, like guys is a universal term. You know, do we really need to think about that? And I said, okay, well, if it's a universal term and you're okay, it's just words. I said, the next time you're in a group of mostly folks who identify as male, I want you to say, hey, gals, what's going on? And see how folks respond and react. And the, the very nature of language is to communicate and to make sure that in that communication, we're also honoring and respecting people. It's okay to make a mistake. What's not okay is to not either acknowledge that mistake or to make someone else responsible for taking care of you in that mistake, right? So saying, you know, there are times when I will say, you know, misgender someone by accident and they will correct me. And I will say, thank you. Thank you for correcting me. I appreciate it. And they'll say something like, it's okay. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not okay. Right. I don't, you know, critique someone in that moment, but my, my mind, I'm like, it's not okay. And you don't have to take care of me. You know, like I'm the one that did some harm and my comfort is not what's valuable right now. It's the repair of that harm. That's really valuable. And to make sure that I do that in that space. And I think, you know, we as coaches need to kind of recognize and understand that like we're changing. A lot of us are older and we've been doing things one way, but the world's been changing for a long time. And, you know, we need to change with it. And that means that while we will get things wrong, we also have to do a lot of work ahead of time to make sure that our only education isn't coming from those people that are most marginalized. Right? Like I, I my responsibility to learn and take care of the folks that are in my community that are take care of the folks that, you know, I interact with on a daily basis, whatever it might be, is my responsibility. I need to go and do the work. I need to go do reading. I need to do some reflection. And if I am only waiting in this moment for those that are marginalized, oppressed, excluded to educate me, and then to kind of be defensive, even that education, <laughs> I'm not doing the work. You know, we've we spent a lot of time talking about self-care over the last two years. And I think self-care is wonderful. I don't think self-care is the conversation that we necessarily need to have. I think community care is the conversation that we need to have. And if I am creating a space for you, then you can engage in, in self-care. If I'm not, right, then it makes it more challenging to do that. I also believe that if we are focusing on community care, you don't need self-care in the same way, right? If we are creating a space where I am not so hyper-focused on the outcome, I am not creating in a toxic environment, well, you don't need two weeks off to go and catch your breath just so that you can like regain because we haven't stressed you out to that point. So if we are doing our job and creating community care, then we can take our vacations to take vacation as opposed to I'm taking a vacation to calm my nervous system because it's been on overload for so long. And it's not until Friday that I actually get the opportunity to sit back and think and be like, oh, I finally can catch my breath and now I got to go back to it and I have 7,000 emails in my inbox. 
where's the community care in that? And how do we create cultures of care within our organizations to do that? I took your question and went, like I took a hard right turn, went off the exit ramp, went into a parking garage, made a phone call, came back out running in just shorts. But I absolutely love that. I mean, I if we had started there, I mean, there's so many places we could go because community is one of my favorite words right now. And also being very clear about what that means and not using it as a buzzword. I'm really nervous because I see, you know how authenticity became like such a buzzword that authenticity wasn't even authentic anymore. And it's like, <laughs> I don't yeah, even want to use that word. I'm still not entirely sure what authenticity means. <laughs> yes. It's like, ugh. You know what it is? It was performative. This is the issue. I'm really afraid that community is going to become very performative. I think yes. community is the next authenticity in terms of what I'm seeing develop in marketing and digital work. And I think it's intention is, it's kind of like Ted Lasso, right? There's that intention, there's that hope. But unfortunately, it gets corrupted by capitalism and maybe even the patriarchy. It's like, how can we use community to make more money? How can we use community to have more control? You know, just like the panic from the great resignation. It's like, how can we make people feel better? But it kind of reminds me of something I saw that felt like horrifying, but important at the same time. Somebody that worked at Google made this TikTok video saying, Google offers all of these things. You know, they have a shuttle that takes you into the office with Wi-Fi on it, but that's there so that you'll work on your way to work. They have food, every meal taken care of, but that's there so that you'll stay there breakfast through dinner. They let you bring your dog to work, which sounds really great, but that's there so that you won't leave to go take care of your dog before finishing your work for the day. They have all this stuff set up that looks like self-care. Right. But it's ultimately designed to keep you working for as long as possible. In service of, yeah. Right. And it's it just feels so depressing because it's like, what is self-care and what is community? And how are we have to become very educated to spot when that's being used to manipulate us to get us just kind of like the mile run. Like, are we training? For ourselves, are we training so that we can go, you know, enlist in the military and fight in a war? Like, it kind of becomes a little disturbing when we dissect some of this. So I guess to leave on a very positive note, Diana, I'm curious where your optimism is right now for the present and the future in terms of all of this work. And it seems like you're very hopeful because I think your work is so incredibly important but do you still feel like you're fighting an uphill battle? Do you feel like it's always going to be turned into, like I said, a, a capitalist, capitalistic, if that's a word, or a patriarchal benefit in order to become peaceful or, or masquerade as peaceful? Or do you think that we can move into a place where it truly is about peace and community? A couple of things. I think that being human means that we will experience pain in our lives. And I think we spend, you know, there's billions and billion dollar industries that are telling us that if we do this, if we do that, if we do this, we'll be happy. And that our goal should be happiness. And that if we're not happy, there's something wrong. And I've come to really recognize and understand that like sadness happens in life, struggle happens in life, and that 
our goal is to understand it, is to accept it at times, is to honor those spaces that we're at and to find kind of small moments of joy and to experience joy. And I think happiness is fleeting and it's something that happens in a moment. Joy is something that stays with us. It's internal because we feel it. Happiness starts out here and then we, it, we bring it in. Joy starts in here. And I think it stays in here. And those moments of joy become really important. And to answer your question, I think that hope is, is an action word. Hope is something that we do, right? And when I think about optimism, optimism is the idea that with effort, with commitment, with persistence, right, that things can be different. So yes, are there days that I wake up and it feels like Sisyphus and I feel like, God, didn't I just bring that boulder up the hill? Why is it down here again? We got to do this again? Like we're going to do that one more time? And I, I have to remind myself that I woke up today and if I wake up in the morning, there is another day to potentially make a difference, to make an impact in that. And as long as that keeps happening, I'm going to keep trying to do that. And it doesn't mean it's not this idea of toxic positivity. That's like, just overcome everything and just keep, be grateful. But I do believe that the dark informs the light and that when we see, and we absolutely confront the ugly, the oppression, the violence, and we see that we do appreciate the light, but we also strive for it more and want to make it something that everybody gets to experience. And I don't know if that's too existential, but that's like my focus, you know? And, and I also believe like, I don't ever talk poorly about myself. I critique myself sometimes and say, huh, you could have said that better, or you could have done that better. And what are the ways that you might do it differently? But I never say anything to myself that isn't kind, because at the end of the day, I believe everybody needs to hear kind words. And if the only kind words you hear are the ones that you speak yourself, you're still hearing kind words. And if you can speak kind words to someone else, that's wonderful and continue to do that. And also speak those same kind words to yourself. That reminds me of something I saw in a newsletter today and shared to Twitter, which is a quote, you can accomplish by kindness what you cannot by force. Mm. So much better than you, anything that I just said. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I feel like it's like the theme of everything you shared today, which is that kindness at the core, peace at the core of coaching and leadership may be so much more effective than the forceful ways that we have been used to operating. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that I'm grateful to reflect on. I'm thinking about all the coaches and leaders and bosses and like <laughs> at times during our talk today, feeling like really emotional over how that's impacted me. But by reflecting on it, I can think about the boundaries I set, the people I choose to be with, but also my own actions. Whenever I feel like I'm in a position as a student or as a team member, and there's somebody, quote, above me as a leader, manager, coach, et cetera, teacher, I'm very sensitive to when I don't feel like their style is working for me. And 
one of my guests, my coping mechanisms is to think like, okay, well, this is triggering me. It doesn't make me feel I'm going to kind of like observe, but also use it as a way to think about how I interact with others too, and how I can become a better teacher, leader, coach, et cetera. Because I think many of us have that opportunity, whether we're parents, whether family members, relationships. I mean, like all of the things that you spoke about today, Diana, show up in our personal and professional lives. And I think that it gives us the power to lead in whatever that means for us, but also to choose or to be mindful in, of our communication and our relationships with other leaders in our lives and stand up for ourselves and recognize when we're not being treated the way that works for us. And do we have the opportunity to speak up and ask for it to be different? And I think that you did a beautiful job of giving that why that I often seek for, right? Like you, you've made it clear for me and I imagine you've made it clear for a lot of listeners too. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you very much for doing this, not just with me today, but in general, I think the conversations that you have are really valuable and important and also help us connect with each other. You know, the more we get to know each other and those that are different from us, the more we recognize and understand our own humanity and our connection to each other. And I think that's really important. So I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Well, there's a lot of mutual appreciation here. And if the listener is feeling that too, I want to direct you to the show notes for this episode where you can see quotes and the transcript and the video once it's up. And also learn more about Diana and her amazing work. I'm at the very bottom of the page. There's a bio there and links to everything. Throughout the transcript, there are links to anything that we brought up today. So I really encourage you to go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L evatr.com. And Diana, what is the number one thing that you want to leave people with in terms of your work right now? What's your big like passion project? What excites you when, you know, somebody's like, oh, I'm really interested in what you're doing, Diana. What is like, I guess the next best step that brings you joy to connect with another person? Gosh, I think the biggest thing is how we create communities of care, the ways in which we create communities where people can show up, be who they are, feel safe, be vulnerable, not have that vulnerability weaponized against them. And like all the creative ways that we really can take care of each other, because I think we need to, we're all in this together. We've got, you know, we're all living a life. We're all on the same planet. We need to figure out a way to do this together and to connect with each other. So that would be my thing. What's How are you contributing to that community of care and the ways in which you can do that? And what is your favorite method of communication with you? Uh, Social media, email, your website and events. Like if someone's really eager to connect with you right now, where should I send them? You know, I think that if somebody wants to obviously get to know the work that we do, then they can go to our website, which is coachingpeace.com. But I actually invite folks to email me. And it's just Diana at coachingpeace.com. And if you, you know, have a challenge or you want to talk about something or you want to learn about how we can support, or if there's something that you did today or any day really well that you're really proud of, and you're ashamed or embarrassed to share that because you think it's going to be bragging, I would like to be the recipient of that. 
I love to hear other people's joy and successes. And we live in a society where we often don't give people the ability to do that as much. So if there's something that you're really proud of, send it along. I will be the one that will celebrate with you. Well, I hope I'm CC'd in that email. So I'm going to put Diana's email <laughs> and mine in the show notes. So everything over Love at Wellevator.com, you can CC me if you would like, or just put us both in the to field for your email. Cause I love that too, Diane. I'm so, I think that's such a beautiful way to end this. You know, like we have so much shame and shame has conditioned us to shrink ourselves down in so many ways. And I hope that at least one listener takes up on that offer to email Diana and maybe CC me too. So we can both just celebrate your accomplishment without you feeling any sort of shame whatsoever. Thank you so much, Diana. I appreciate you endlessly. Likewise. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to Wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.